it is incredibly challenging, incredibly overwhelming to overcome something that takes a hold of you. My guest today is Joshua Shea. Joshua is spreading an incredible message about overcoming porn addiction. Topics like these are difficult for us to discuss, but they have to be discussed. We can't shy away from topics that make us feel a little queasy or they make us feel uncomfortable or just really put us in a different mind frame. We have to discuss things that make us think, that give us moments to pause. And in that pause, we find ways to be accepting and open our minds and to really see what's going on. I'm thankful for Joshua being on the show today to discuss porn addiction and how he wants to spread the word and help others to become better and overcome this very difficult addiction. Ladies and gentlemen, Joshua Shea. Hey, man. Well, thank you for being on my podcast today. I'm, I'm really excited to jump into, I think, a topic that uh, a lot of people are going to find uh, really interesting. And I think your story is going to resonate with quite a few people, I think. Yeah, it's one of those things where um, I think with most porn addicts, especially those who ended up in a situation similar to me, uh, you just want to run and hide. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of embarrassment. Um, but what I've found is it's actually incredibly empowering sharing my story because you find so many other people who are so much like you out there, or maybe they're not exactly like you, but they suddenly, you know, see themselves in you because they have this commonality. And, uh, it's one of the reasons that I keep doing this and I'm going to keep doing this is because we need more people to talk about this because it's like you get a group of people together, you can find a couple who have a drinking problem, you know, you can find a couple who have diabetes. Sadly, these days, you can find a couple who probably have family members with opioid problems. Now, now, you know, we need to start having the conversation of porn addiction. Otherwise, it's going to become one of those things that we think about in 30 years. Man, we should have done something about this. What do you think the shame? And before we jump in your story, you know, you talked about the shame behind it. What is the overwhelming overwhelming element of the shame that maybe why we're not having the discussion about it you know i think it goes back to our very puritanical roots mm. um uh, uh, in this country you know we were this country was largely founded upon and the societal norms were largely created by uh a group of white europeans that were uh I suppose sexually frigid would be a liberal way of saying it. <laughs> um, that, you know, anything having to do with sex and nudity was evil. It was wrong. Yeah, they were a uh, angry God type of people mm -hmm. who believed that you couldn't, uh, you know, uh, express your sexuality. And what happens when you can't express something that's very natural is that it becomes very repressed. 
Um, and, you know, you've seen that in uh, clergy and churches through the last 100, 200 years right. of, what ha of what happens when you repress somebody's sexuality. And I think that with pornography, it's just been an extension of that where this is something that uh, even if you look at pornography and somebody comes up to you and says, oh, man, did you see the latest issue of Penthouse? You're going to be like, oh, no, I don't look at that stuff. You know, it's it's right. something that in society we just still don't largely accept. The numbers are crazy. It's like 80% of guys under 30 years old look at porn at least once a month. 67% of guys under 49 look at porn once a month. But we're all still kind of of that mindset or have been raised with that idea of you don't talk about pornography you don't talk about looking at it you certainly don't talk about what you're doing to yourself while you're looking at it right uh, so if we can't have any of these conversations we can't talk about the problems that arise for some people around them uh you know ma mainly the the addiction so i think that's the problem is you know how are you going to talk about the problem of pornography addiction when you still can't as a society talk about pornography itself well it's interesting i find that you know like someone like yourself coming out to talk about these things i feel like more people are open and receptive to have these conversations over like podcasts and things of that nature or just one-on-one -on -one. i think we're making great strides in kind of demystifying a variety of topics uh these days it's like we're becoming more conscious and open to these things and obviously there's still segments of population who are like why are you talking about this? But I believe it's important to explore different topics and areas of life, you know. Well, absolutely. You know, I think that uh, when I when I talk about pornography addiction, I liken it to a couple of different problems we had in the 80s or 90s. When you look at the AIDS crisis in the 80s, that was a huge deal. I was, you know, a young teenager then. And but you see what happens when mainstream pop culture society, your average mom and pops and the government gets behind something. We yeah. really we really did a hell of a job on AIDS. You know, if it had AIDS extrapolated the way they said it would, half of us would be dead now. Right. The way the way that they were, you know, doing doomsday predictions of what AIDS would do. And it didn't because we raised the funds, we raised the knowledge, we got the research done. Then you look at the opioid crisis. You can go back to cop shows in the 70s, and they're talking about heroin and other opiates in those shows. You can go back and listen to rap music in the mid to late 80s, and they're talking about abusing stuff like Vicodin. So for people to say that just in the last five years, this opioid crisis has jumped up on us is absolutely stupid because we've known it's going to be there for the last 30, 35 years. But instead of embracing the problem like we did with AIDS, what we did as a society is decide that the opioid users and the opiate abusers, they were different. They were uh -huh. somehow lower class. They were not worth our time and effort and energy. And we just let it be there. Now, in the last five years... Everybody in their family has somebody who is addicted to opiates or somebody close to the family. You know, it, it's one of these things where it has permeated and now we are in a reactive mode. What we can do with pornography, and the, like I said, the numbers are scary. 32% of men under 30 say they have a problem with pornography. That's one, wow. out, of th that's one out of three men. We don't want to let that just keep 
perpetuating for the next 30 years as each generation gets older because we're going to end up in a very sick state of things. Instead, why don't we look back and take a note from the AIDS way of doing things and be proactive because a proactive approach to an oncoming healthcare problem works. The AIDS crisis proved it. A reactive approach far too late like the opiate crisis doesn't work as we've seen happen. And I figure that, you know, my job out here, you know, is to just basically yell as loud as I can at people that we have a giant problem coming on us. And if we don't take care of this, it's going to be another opioid crisis because there's going to come a point in 2050 when half the men in this country and more than a quarter of the women are porn addicts. And you tell me how sexually healthy that country looks like. Right. Would you consider like, man, you got me thinking about this question was just growing in my mind as you were talking. I'm listening. This is how this goes for me all the time. I don't plan anything and That's people cool. tell me things and I'm like, I have this question. It's just growing in the back of my mind. What would you consider to be pornography in today's world? Because I think some maybe like people my age, your age, they may say, oh, you know, your typical uh, video based pornography or is it pictures? Think about Instagram and people on there. And would you consider that pornography like it's turning into a certain I, soft pornography? I think that pornography is, is, is two things. Number one, it's what we can all agree upon. Triple uh, X films with okay. intercourse, um, you know, films that maybe aren't intercourse, but are sexual in nature that are very deviant. Um, I think we can, you know, generally agree what, if you have to go into a store that doesn't allow kids under 18 years old, uh, it's probably pornography. Right. Uh, but, but I think that pornography is just as much a concept as it is an actual thing, because let's face it, if, uh, you know, if your wife gets uh, Victoria's Secret magazine or Victoria's Secret catalogs and girls with lingerie do it for you and that's that's your little thing well that's like a pornography magazine coming in now right. let's let's say that girls in lingerie do nothing for you is that still a pornographic magazine no and I think that's what you know I think that there are for a lot of people I think going to the beach can be a pornographic experience because of all the skin that's all over the place and all of the you know feelings that it arises and for others you know somebody like myself I hate the beach I love <laughs> I, I love pretty ladies I hate the beach I hate the water I hate the sand I hate the parking I hate every bit about the beach yeah. you couldn't get me there um, so the beach is not a pornographic place for me, yet I know guys who I've met in recovery who avoid it because that starts to get them going and get them going down a slippery slope. So it's one of these things where um, with, with pornography addiction, uh, every, you know, everybody says, well, that's easy. It's like drug addiction. You just stop. That's the goal. And really the goal is you have to figure out what healthy sexuality is, where your lines are. It's much like a uh, person who has an eating disorder. And when I was in rehab, I found myself actually feeling very bonded to the, to the people in the eating disorder program because they had to figure out how to eat healthy. They had to figure out how to have a healthy relationship with food. I have to figure out how to have a healthy relationship with my sexuality i can't just all of a sudden never have sex with my wife ever again and right. you know never you know 
try to avoid any little bit of nudity I ever see in my life and never be allowed to hear sex or anything like that because society pounds sex on you all the time with all the advertising and everything that's out there. You need to learn how to use it. So there's a healthy medium and the definition of pornography is really individual in the eye of the beholder, much like the definition of healthy eating is in the eye of the beholder. Amazing. You know, I don't think people look at it that way. In my, from what I've seen, they look at it as kind of like your hardcore pornography on a site or something or video versus an individualized attraction to something for that, which I think is fascinating. So segueing that, so tell me a little bit, I want to dive deep into your history with pornography from the beginning and how this journey started for you. Well, um, you know, I am an addict and my addict origins are very much like most people have pornography addiction. Um, porn addicts, uh, generally, 80, 81%, this is according to Patrick Carnes, who's kind of one of the big gurus, 81% of porn addicts have some kind of sexual abuse in their past, and mm -hmm. 97% .97 have signed some kind of emotional abuse in their past. Um, so there is trauma with every uh, porn addict for the most part, and I, I'm no different. Um, I, my parents were wonderful people. The one thing that they did wrong was they let me be babysat by somebody who gaslighted the hell of them into thinking that they had a healthy environment where I was being taken care of mm. because I wasn't. I was in a very uh, emotionally unstable environment. I was one where there was, uh, if not sexual abuse, serious sexual inappropriateness happening. Um, there was physical abuse. Uh, it was not a, a good time. And what happened to me there, and I was four, five, six years old, what I did was I developed my survival skills in this place and my coping skills. And my main coping skill became just survive to the next day. Just detach mentally, survive to the next day. Do whatever you have to do. Um, over time, I was able to kind of uh, repress these memories as I got older. But when I was 12 or 13 years old, I saw hardcore pornography for the first time. A cousin of mine presented me with a couple of uh, penthouse or hustlers. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, within the first five seconds of looking at them, I knew that I'd found something special. I it, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before, and I don't even think it specifically had to do with the sex act happening on the on the on the page. I don't know what it was, but it was just like this lightning bolt hit me that said, "You have just found something here. You have found something transformative. It's going to be like a drug, like medicine. This is going to make you feel better." And like I said, I'm 12 years old. The only other time I ever felt this was about two, three years later when I got drunk for the first time. Right. And when I was drunk, I had that epiphany of, oh my, this is why everybody does this. This is why everybody <laughs> drinks all the time. I feel great. I feel fantastic. This is how I feel when I look at the magazines with the naked people in them. Yeah. And pretty much, you know, when people say something like, you know, pornography addiction isn't real, I can tell you that my reaction to seeing hardcore pornography for the first time was almost exactly the same little tickle in my brain as my reaction to getting drunk for the first time. And then for the next 20, 25 years of my life, uh, getting drunk and getting and using pornography were almost the exact same thing and they took care of the exact same problems you know it, it it's a classic addiction um 
anyway, as I as I got older, uh, you know, I was a pretty much a popular kid in high school, um, but people didn't know what I was doing. I would, yeah. you know, I found I found a couple stores that would sell me Playboys. I found some video stores that would rent me porn, so I could always take care of those issues um, and used almost every day back then. As I got into my early twenties. You know, I dated. Uh, I ended up meeting uh, the woman who would become my wife when I was 25, 26. Um, and in times where things were easy and going well, my pornography addiction and drinking weren't you know, forefront. When things weren't going well, they were the crutch that I relied on. And I was able to hide both fairly well. Uh, you know, I'm not the person who goes to a party and has one or two beers because that seems like a waste for me. Uh, you know, I want to have eight or 10 beers. I, you know, I don't drink like the regular person does. I go to a, I go to a bar and I have iced tea because I can't get stupid sloppy drunk in a bar. Um, I do, I did it at home by myself and porn was the same thing. After everybody went to bed, when I was left alone, if nobody was at home, I could engage in it then and I could give it the time it deserved and have it work its wonders that way. Um, Ultimately, um, I ended up uh, starting a magazine in my hometown here in Maine. I live in central Maine, and uh, it was a uh, lifestyle magazine, and I launched it in 2008-2009. That was right when the recession had just hit, and it, it was doomsday. Uh, so it was absolutely the stupidest time to start a new business, but ironically, it was a success overnight. And I had a five-year business plan that was all done within four or five months. Um, I became a local celebrity pretty much overnight, despite the fact that I'd worked in the media locally here for the previous 10, 12 years. Um, And uh, after I got things running for a year there very well, I launched a film festival that became one of the largest in the Northeast for several years, uh, brought up celebrities. It got national recognition. And then uh, in 2011, uh, I said to myself, well, what does this area need more of? Well, it needs more of me. So I, re- <laughs> I ran for my local city council and wow. I won in a landslide. So I was doing all of this stuff um, and I, I can look back now and recognize it's because I was just running from myself. You right. know, I, I was not a very good father. I was not a very good husband. I was better at controlling my world at work or controlling the people at the film festival or setting the budgets for the people in town and controlling the votes of what's going to happen in town. Um, when I would come home from all of that with the family asleep in bed, I would start drinking. I would start using porn because the one thing I couldn't do was just sit there and be with myself. Uh, that, that was the toughest thing in the world. Um, fast forward up to uh, early 2013. Uh, our, my magazine's been out about four or five years at this point. It's no longer the hip cool young Mm -hmm. thing in town i'm not seen as this scrappy little up-and-comer people are not throwing advertising money just because they're being nice Um, some have now realized that their advertising may be better spent on radio or the newspaper and we still haven't had enough new businesses come in to replace the ones that have left that i'm starting to see a decline in revenue and that's starting to scare the heck out of me 
And I'm not sure what to do after a couple months because revenue keeps going down, expenses keep going up, and I can't stop it. So this is where the, you know, the story really takes the horrible turn yeah. is that I made the decision to pull myself off of my bipolar medication. Oh, I was diagnosed bipolar around 21, 22, and I had been on medication, you know, for the last dozen years or so. Um, and I think that with all of that time, I romanticized the bipolar. I remembered the mania being a hell of a lot more fun than it was. I remember the energy being stronger than it was. I remember the creativity being better than it was. And something in me told me, unless I pulled myself off of those pills to keep myself up a few more hours a day, to tap into that energetic creative side that had been a little bit dormant, I wasn't going to save this company. So I pulled myself I pulled myself off of the medication. Within about 3 weeks my drinking had exploded. I was now drinking before I went to work. I was making sure that uh every time I went to lunch it was a place that had beer right. or if I was having an afternoon meeting it was some place where we could have happy hour. Um and then at night for the first time in my life I moved from beer to tequila. Uh, which you know I never thought I would have done in a hundred years, but I, I made that transition. I also started looking at pornography in the morning after I brought my kids to school. I'd come back home, usually jump in the shower, go off to work. Well, I'd take a detour and spend thirty minutes watching porn. And late at night, I was watching porn, and it was you know getting a little bit weirder. And eventually, I made the move, and we're now into uh, mid two thousand thirteen here. I made the decision to jump into chat rooms. So I started talking to women on uh, cam to cam, except that my cam wasn't really me. I was able, uh, through learning from another online weirdo, I was able to find a video of a good looking 23, 24 year old guy oh, wow. who's just typing away, you know, and while, you know, while this loop of this guy typing away was running on one part of my screen, I was on the other side of the screen. Keep in mind, I have a long history of journalism, including investigative journalism. I'm very good at asking leading questions. I'm very good at getting little bits of information. I know where to go to discover more information about you. So I would, my, my game in life became talking to these women and I didn't want a woman who, a woman who would be sexual right away. I wanted a woman who was the kind of woman who said, no, I'd never show my boobs to anybody on, on right. the that way I could spend the next two hours getting little bits of information going on, on one part of my screen, going on to the other part of the screen, finding, you know, out everything I could about her and then trying to groom the conversation and steer the conversation. And I mean, it, it was catfishing at its you know, right, most, yeah. most, most devious level. And, you know, if I found your, uh, Facebook page and I'd go into the photos and I'd see that, you know, when you were younger, you were into competitive uh, gymnastics. Well, I might su subtly slip in that next weekend I have to go to my little sister's gymnastics meet. So, you know, I'm going to be right. busy. Oh, my goodness. You my I was in gymnastics. Oh, guess we just bonded there. And it was it was a giant game to me because with my uh, company falling apart, with my relationship with my wife and kids worse than it ever had been, with the drinking having increased, my sleeping wasn't happening nearly as much as it was because I was off the meds. 
my hygiene had just gone into the dumpster. Um, you know, I was probably taking a shower every five, six days at this point. Right. Uh, and it, so it was, and on top of all of this, I started having some of these little memories of bad stuff that happened to me when I was little that mm. I couldn't quite put my finger on. I learned about why that was happening later, but I couldn't put my finger on. And it was just this, this horrible mix of things happening. The only time in my life that I felt like I was under control was when I was in that chat room controlling that woman and making her do what I wanted her to do. And usually what I wanted her to do was to take off her shirt or to, you know, masturbate herself. Um, if I found a woman who wouldn't do that, I would do stupid things like ask her to move the furniture around the room just because it was about control and it was control, about make, yeah. making them do something I didn't want to do. And at the end of, uh, uh, sessions I had with these women I found online when they were successful I would usually take a screen capture as a trophy and it, it wasn't for you know uh, sex reasons it wasn't for masturbatory reasons because I know how the internet works if I wanted masturbatory material it's everywhere sure. so this was a trophy because if you would if you would have ever come into my office when I uh, ran my magazine, you would have seen a wall full of plaques and trophies and certificates behind me. And that wasn't to let you know how awesome I was. That was to remind myself how awesome I was mm. because I needed that all the time. I needed constant reassurance that I was the best. I was in control. And that's the only place I was getting it at this point was from these women. So move forward to the morning of March 20th, 2014. I am uh, sitting at home. Uh, they had canceled school for the day because it had snowed. My son was home with me. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, two cars pull up to the house and a van pulls up as well. And you don't have to watch a lot of cop shows to know what unmarked cars look like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when it's March in Maine and five guys in golf jackets come towards your house, you know something's bad. Um, and so I, I immediately thought somebody had died. Uh, I went to the door and the officer in the front had a piece of paper. I was able to pick off enough words on it to know what it was. And he let me know that they suspected that I had underage pornography on my computer. Mm. And so I let them inside and they were very cool with me. They allowed, uh, they allowed one of them to get my son out of the house and bring him, bring him elsewhere so we could have our conversation. Uh, but within 15, 20 minutes, they laid out this case that, one of my conversations I'd had a couple months earlier in November of 2013 um, was with a teenage girl. And they had the photographic proof that I created for it. Um, and, you know, so it's one of those things where uh, I didn't know at the time that she was a teenager. I don't know that I cared. As long as they didn't look like little kids, I was fine with it. But um, I also you know, really try to make sure that people understand I take full responsibility for it. I know, just like you know, that there are 15 and 16-year-old girls who look 25 or 26 and vice versa. And just because you think somebody looks old enough doesn't mean they are old enough. Um, I know that, and I don't, I don't blame my addiction either. I know that it got to the point where cause and effect and consequences were clouded and skewed but it got to that point because I pulled myself off my bipolar meds. You know, I, I knew I had a previous existing mental health condition 
and I pulled myself off the bipolar meds and it's uh, on my shoulders what happens beyond that point. This is where it led to. And this is part of why I'm out there sharing the story because for 99.8% of my ongoing pornography addiction life, I never could have done this. This is cheating. This is wrong. Yeah. This is stupid. I never would, despite being a porn addict, I never would have done this. So, you know, as somebody's listening to your show, if they're thinking to themselves, yeah, I'm a porn addict, but I could never get there. Well, I never thought I could get there either. And if you're a porn addict, all addicts escalate. Just like I went from beer to tequila, or you'll see gambling addicts increase the, their bets until they right. can't afford anything anymore porn addicts escalate as well if somebody thinks they're not going to no buddy you are you're not different so that's why i tell my story is really try to urge people get help before you get to this place where you don't have the control that i didn't have so wow that's incredible um and one very honest i think that it's difficult for people to be that honest sometimes and so um i'm riveting honestly um and I think what was what was the point where rehab came into the picture where it was like, hey, I have to do something about this to change my life. Uh, that came in little spurts um, the day after I was arrested and my wife picks me up at the uh, county sheriff's office. We try to drive to my house. There's already a TV news van there. Oh. You know, a, a, a city count or a former city councilor, as I just left, a former city councilor who did this giant magazine and ran this giant film festival, getting arrested on underage porn is a big story. So for the next two days, my family was dodging TV cameras and uh, newspaper reporters. Um, so, uh, you know, it was it was one of those things where at that point I realized, OK, this is a big deal and this would not be happening if I didn't have some kind of problem. But I only thought about alcohol at that point. I don't even know really? if I, I don't even know if I knew pornography addiction was a real thing. Wow. I just, I thought I was making dumb choices when I was drunk, which obviously I was making dumb choices when I was drunk. But I went to my uh, lawyer the day after I was arrested for the first time with my uh, father and my wife. And uh, his first question was, is this a litigation game or is this a sentencing game? And I said, they got me. It's a sentencing game. And he said, OK, well, uh, first thing, and he was kind of looking at his checklist. He's like, first thing, is there, do you have any issues with drugs or alcohol? And I said, no issues with drugs, no issues with alcohol. And my father and my wife both stopped and said, oh, no, he has an issue with alcohol. And wow. I was, yeah. I was like, you think so? And my, they're like, oh, yes, you've had an issue with alcohol for a very long time. And I was like, oh, really? And, and, and they, I thought I was hiding it so well. And uh, they, right, right. My, my lawyer said, that's okay. We, uh, we have relationships with many different facilities around the country. Um, we will get you the help you need. And I said out loud, okay, well, whatever the judge needs to make it look good. And my lawyer stopped me right then and there. And he said, hey, wait, wait, wait a sec. This is all going to be over someday, the legal part of this. You may get three weeks in jail. You may get three months. You may get three years. You may not get any jail. You may get 10 years of probation. You may get no probation. We don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be a long time until we know. However, we do know one day it will all be over. Do you want to be the same guy you are now when it's over? And I just thought, and I said, well, you know, obviously, obviously, no. And, uh, he, and he was like, okay, well, 
Here's the thing. The legal stuff is the second most important thing. Getting you healthy is the most important thing. Yeah. And th that was the first time anybody had put it in those terms to me. And uh, I went off. I left about a week later for, for Palm Springs. And um, it probably took me a week, I'd say. I was uh, listening. I was polite. But I was still thinking, I hope that this looks good for the judge. And probably day seven or eight, I don't even know what it was, whoever said it, but somehow it clicked. And it just came to me that, oh my goodness, they are talking about me here. Yeah. I'm, exa I'm exactly, they're talking about alcoholics. I'm exactly the guy they're talking about. Uh, there's no, no two ways about this. So over the next couple of weeks, I slowly started to embrace the program and see more of myself in it. And as I worked one-on-one -on -one with my uh, counselor, he uh, had me meet with a certified sex addiction therapist that he knew off campus. And uh, meeting with this guy, he helped me understand why I was starting to have some of these repressed memories pop yeah. up because I was in a state of fear for the first time, unlike I had been since I was a little kid. And my brain was basically going back to that place. And I was using those survival skills uh, that I developed as a five-year-old that unfortunately don't work for a 37-year-old man, right. uh, as I was at the time. Um so that CSAT helped me understand those memories. And he also helped me understand that I did indeed have a pornography addiction. Um, after I left that uh, rehab and I came back to Maine, I did very intense one-on-one -on -one therapy with the same therapist I actually still have today. And uh, I read as much as possible. I'm a researcher. I read as much as possible about addiction and porn addiction as I could. Unfortunately, there wasn't very much out there about porn addiction yeah. uh, in general. A little bit about sex addiction, but my addiction wasn't intercourse. So it was, it was kind of hard to uh, completely uh, uh, relate to it. Uh, so after about six, seven months, my uh, therapist said, you know, the, the alcohol rehab did wonders for you. I think you should do the same thing with a uh, pornography rehab. Mm -hmm. my, lawyer, my lawyer agreed. We uh, found a place in Texas. Uh, I, I, I spent 10 weeks in, at the alcohol rehab, by the way. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, it was a long time. And then I ended up in Texas at a uh, rehab for uh, sex and porn addicts, uh, also eating disorder and, and drugs and alcohol. Um, excuse me. And... Uh, I spent seven weeks there, and both of those rehab experiences were absolutely transformative. They were the most important parts of my recovery journey, um, and not necessarily just because of any treatment that I had mm -hmm. or any schedule that they produced for me, but the fact that there was a lot of downtime to talk to other addicts, whether they were a meth addict or like had an eating disorder or were a fellow porn addict, just being around these people who all had similar issues, who all, uh, who were all kind of broken to put it you know mildly yeah, we, yeah. we could all, we could all be ourselves around each other there wasn't this shame hanging over our head of having these addictions and having to hide them and having to lie about them we could you know we could tell stories about having our addiction and we could recognize in telling our stories my god that's not a great war story that's that's almost tragic how did i survive that um uh, 
And that was really the key, I think, to the big key in the early part of my recovery was the chance to go away from real life, go away from everybody I knew, be someplace where the land looks different, where everything was different. And, you know, it, it's almost like house arrest, but that's exactly what I needed at the time. Yeah. Uh, I went and I became a much better person my, than I ever had been. Uh, two years after I was initially uh, arrested, uh, and this is ironic because the day that you and I are taping this day, it is four years to the day that I was sentenced. Amazing. Um, yeah, exactly. That's crazy. Uh, four, year, four years to the day today that I was sentenced, um, I got uh, six months in jail because uh, I created the pornography of that girl and she did not know who I was. So by her not knowing who I was, because I used that uh, avatar or video of that yeah. other guy, that was considered uh, exploitation. And because I took a screen capture of her, that was considered production of underage pornography. Um, and I can't disagree on either of those things because the law is pretty straight up. And while, you know, a lot of times people ask me, do you think you got the right amount of time? Do you think you should have gone to jail at all? You know, I tell people that uh, I got six months. That's what the judge decided was proper. Um, I, I've stopped asking myself if that was too much or too little. It was what it was. Yeah. Um, however, I do think that there needed to be a message sent that you can't do that to people because that kind of stuff is happening to people all the time every day. The DA in my case, who I knew because of the social circles I was in and my magazine and whatnot, he came up to me one time during those two years and he said to me, you know, Josh, I got to tell you, only one out of 100 guys gets caught doing what you did. It's just that you're that guy. And right. You know, what What can you say? Sometimes you win the lottery, sometimes you lose. Uh, it took me a while, but I now view it as I won the lottery because thank God those police officers showed up. I honestly don't know where my drinking and my porn would have led. I don't know if my wife would have left. I'm sure she would have. I'm sure I would have ended up losing my job. Um my life was, was falling apart. I can't say that I wouldn't have died from some bad behavior. Or I wouldn't have died from some bad choice. Um, you know, them being there that day when they were there, it uh, as, as, as trite and corny as it is to say, you know, it's almost like they were angels at my door. And it took me a yeah. little while. Took me a while to realize it, but here I am now, six years after the arrest happened, four years after I was sentenced, I am ha help healthier, happier, giving more back to the world, have better relationships with my wife, kids, and parents than I ever have, you know, spiritually more grounded, more fulfilled by really everything. Um, You know, uh, it's 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 almost a success story. And in this being a success story, I've just recognized that I need to give back. And when I was in jail, I met a lot of men who had uh, sex issues, who had porn issues, who were more embarrassed by them than they were by any drug addiction or drug conviction yeah. or, or any, you know, I, I met a man who was in jail for the third time for slapping his girlfriend around. Yet he was more embarrassed by the fact that he 
spent his lunch breaks at work looking at porn on his phone in his car. You know, that's what he had trouble talking about. Wow. And that's what I that's when I really came to the conclusion that, OK, number one, there was some visibility around this case with me. Uh, so people know who I am. I'm a half decent communicator, both talking and in writing. And clearly there is nothing out there for the average person. There are some academic texts out there, uh, some how to texts, and there are, you know, studies and stuff. And while I like reading that kind of stuff, I know your average guy doesn't. So I decided to start creating materials uh, for the average people out there. And I wrote my first book uh, that came out January of 2018, which is basically my memoir of the uh, last four or five years of my life of my addiction as my magazine and my addiction grew and then as they both crashed. Right. Um, and then I started my website, which is kind of for anybody connected to addiction or, or porn addiction anyway. And then uh, just uh, two months ago, my latest book came out, which is called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? I wrote that one for the partners of porn addicts because Partners of porn and sex addicts, they feel the addiction in a way that partners of other addictions don't. You know, if, if, you're, if your partner is a heroin addict, you don't ask yourself if he's a heroin addict because you're not enough. You know, if your partner's a gambling addict, you don't ask yourself if it's because you're not doing enough in the bedroom. But women generally, because that's the, that's the majority, who, yeah. have, who have partners that are male who are porn addicts, uh, they ask themselves these questions. And they go through this immense trauma called betrayal trauma that uh, most women and most partners in other addictions don't feel. And it shocked me when my first book came out and my website came out just how many of these partners contacted me. And I re realized and remembered just how my wife, much like I, had no real resources out there. So I wrote the book with a licensed marriage and family uh, therapist out of California. Uh, like I said, it came out two months ago. Uh, it's getting really good reviews by both the, the uh, therapist community and the users themselves. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's again, it goes back to what we talked about at the top of the show nobody is talking about this nobody is 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 uh answering questions and you know just to be able to tell a woman that no he was a porn addict before he met you you have nothing to do with it i know yeah, it, ki it, ki it kills you he's looking at this it kills you to find out it's betrayal it's you don't it, it's meeting a man who you didn't know it's trust issues but you didn't have anything to create to do with creating the addict and there's not many places where women can go to hear that how did your wife have so much resolve to work with you stay with you through this sound which sounds like a very difficult time oh it, it definitely was uh it was it was one of those things where it was day by day you know the day that uh, she picked me up at, as she bailed me out of jail um, I got into the car with her and I said hey before you talk um, I just want you to let you know uh, I'm not going to fight you in a divorce. You can have the house, you can have the kids, you can have the pets, you can have all the money, you can have whatever you want. Uh, wh what's going on here is way too much for anybody to handle. Uh, I'm not going to fight you on any of this. And she looked at me and she goes, nah, uh, it wasn't a little kid, was it? And I said, no, no, it was a teenage girl who I don't think I even realized was a teenage girl at the time. And it was like, okay, as long as it wasn't little kids, um, you've been sick for a long time and let's just figure this out what we're going to do next uh she played mama bear and made sure that the kids were okay and she made sure i was okay and 
you know, she wanted to be there for the lawyer. She was there helping me pick out a rehab. Uh, when I came back from rehab, there's a little bit of a uh, difficult adjustment period. Feel like you feel like a new person, but you're back in the old place where all the old people are still doing all the old things. Yeah, uh, and you've got to fight yourself to try to stay this new person or hold on to as much of it as you can. Um, and she saw that I did the hard work. I think that had I not done the hard work, had I not been doing the research, had I not been trying to live it out, um, she would have left. And when I was trying to get more help and I was trying to deal with this and I was, you know, I, I, I knew that I could handle jail. Whether you gave me five days or five years in jail, I can handle jail. I was worried about my family. So, you know, I was uh, trying to accumulate money for when I went and she yeah. saw that I was trying to take care of them. And she also, when I, you know, when I got out of my first rehab, uh, I think that she also started to embrace the fact that she had issues that she needed to take care of. Mm. Uh, as I went into my second rehab, she actually enrolled into the uh, laparoscopic surgery program at a local hospital because as I was, get, you know, going deep into the final months of my addiction and and my early recovery, she was using food as her panacea. Right. And she gained quite a lot of weight in the year or two, you know, leading up to me going to that second rehab. And she knew she needed to, you know, get better and get healthy. So she went through that program and lost well over 100 pounds. You know, uh, the people around you, as is often said, get sick as well. And yeah. we, we all made sure that we were taking care of each other, that everybody was getting what they need. You know, the kids uh, went to therapy. Um, my son found that he, he loved the experience of having a kind of third party to talk to. Yeah. And still goes to this day. Uh, you know, my, my daughter dealt with it in her own different ways and has put it behind her. And I have better relationships with both of them than I ever had when they were little, which in some ways is tragic. But I'm so thankful I have those relationships now. Um, you know, it, it's, it's one of these things where, uh, she dealt with the trauma by making sure her family was okay, which included me and by having a therapist and by making sure she was doing a lot of self care. And that's what I always push to the women who have these, uh, uh, husbands or boyfriends as addicts is that only the addict is ultimately in control of their recovery and only you are in control of making sure you stay healthy you have to stay healthy for yourself you have to stay healthy for the kids if you have them you know you're not going to be in a good position if you keep going down this hole of of uh trauma and of betrayal and i'm not saying it's not absolutely deserved you know you need to have your time to mourn you need to have your time to be angry you need to have your time to confront uh but you also need to take care of yourself amidst all this happening and uh you know that's that's what happened and you know my my wife had to deal with certain things i didn't you know her job that she had after it became very public that this happened to me, um, she told me within a month, they're looking for any reason to get rid, get rid of me. Right. And they found one about a month later that, you know, we probably could have fought them on it, but that would have just got more headlines and we didn't want that. She ended up finding a place that understood what was going on and was was uh, was very understanding. But you do. She had to deal with people looking at her sideways. You know, in the you you go research me on Google. You're going to find information that from early on in the case was incorrect. 
you know, at one point they said that I could never be around my children. That wasn't true. I was able to be around my children from day one. You know, yeah. they, they said that they found uh, hundreds of uh, pictures on my computer. They didn't find hundreds of pictures. They found two. But you don't call the newspaper and tell them, hey, you're reporting my underage pornography story wrong. You want to fix it? You, you just don't right. do that. You just don't do that. So there's, you know, there was there was misinformation out there on top of what was actually true that she had to have other people look at her and think, oh, my God, why is this woman with him? So she deserves all the credit in the world. If it had not been for her support. Um, I would not have got through this as cleanly. And that includes up to today when she's, you know, doing things like taking care of the dogs while I'm doing a show with you so they don't come, right. bother, come bother us. Right. Or, you know, if I am losing money to drive to Western Massachusetts to give a library presentation to seven people that is paying me nothing, she knows how important that is not just to me and to my recovery, but to put out there into the world. And she will, you know, take care of things that day while I'm away. So without, without her support, I would be, I'd be a goner, you know, I, I, and I let her know that as much as I can. I am forever grateful for having her. Man, who was this woman? She's an amazing woman. <laughs> I mean, this is... I'd, 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 I'd show her to you, but then I'd be afraid she'd think you're so good looking she'd leave me. So. <laughs> Humor, too, with it. That's funny. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you were mentioning about also like men and women, the differences in men and women. It's overwhelmingly a male-based uh, addiction. Why is that? Uh, it is, although that is changing the number one of the last three years, the number one demographic of, uh, increased reports of porn addiction is white women. Um, I believe it ultimately has to do with the fact that pornography was not a thing that you engaged in passively in the past. You or I had to go to the store to buy a magazine right. or to the to the video store, to the adult bookstore. Um, and 95% of the products were geared towards males. Um, so for a woman to really get her hands on pornography, she was in a very small minority of women who were willing to be that one lady in the head shop or the adult bookstore, to be that one woman who walks with the Playgirl magazine to the front yeah. uh, counter. They just didn't, you know, the, the movies that were at the adult movie theaters were geared towards men, um, uh, geared towards basically straight white men. Right. And yeah, if you were anything else, you were not, you know, gay men were not getting their pornography itch scratched with what was happening in, in mainstream. And when we developed this amazing thing called the internet, mm -hmm. suddenly it just takes a couple clicks and you can watch a donkey having sex with an elderly woman on a unicycle while people are throwing fish sticks at them. If, right. that's, what you're, if that's what you're into. You know, we have, we have created the greatest porn system in the history of the world and now women can get at it. And think about it. If women have equal access to things, not just porn, but schools, voting, jobs, history tells us they're a lot more like us than we think. It right. just takes it takes a while for the culture and cultural norms to catch up. Um, and, and, you know, it takes a couple generations for things to catch up to believe that women would not like pornography as much as men. While that may be the case now, 
three, four generations from now, if the uh, everything is equal and everything is level and everybody is getting their porn through the Internet, I don't see any reason why women, you know, likely won't catch up um, and, and be just just the same as men. And the uh, the way that the numbers are changing show that women are now uh, in the process or in the very beginning of catching up with men. Oh, my uh, gosh. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, we think of it as a male problem now. Whenever I run into or, or talk to a female porn addict, you know, I always urge them, tell your story, start a, start a blog, yeah. you know, contact some podcast people, write a book, because, you know, there are not many men telling their stories of porn addiction. I am very rare. I, I think I have probably done more interviews about porn addiction in the last two years than anybody else on earth. And I think that there needs to be a couple women out there like me or one woman out there like me who will just be willing to say, okay, whatever. I was a porn addict. I'm, I'm getting better. I'm proof you can get better. Here's my story because we need these stories to come out and normalize this. And probably even more than men need these stories, women need these stories. So interesting. You know, that kind of hit a nerve. It's, it's interesting on that um, site we're both on, Spot of Guests, where, you know, where podcasters are on and experts and uh, people want to be guests. I think your, your introduction stood out because you were just overwhelmingly upfront about your life. And I think on a site, which I like the site, there is probably, it seems like hundreds and hundreds of people putting out, I'm doing a podcast on like business, uh, how to be a better business person yes. or leadership or um, this marketing strategies and stuff. And then there comes, uh, there comes Josh, like a light out of nowhere, porn addiction. And, and, and I'd like, I don't want to hear about business. I want to hear about stuff like this. Yeah. Well, if, if they really were good at business, wouldn't they be doing business and not, <laughs> not bothering to do a podcast? <laughs> I'd be out there earning money. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, and thank God, you know, people say like, oh, the Internet was your downfall and downfall for porn. But it's like, but the Internet has created the podcast world. And without right. without it, I wouldn't be able to be out there talking to people about this. Uh, and I try to be upfront. You know, I try to let people know this is you don't have to be graphic talking about this. You know, right. I, I can go on a show and if they want to talk X rated, I can use plenty of X rated terms. Sure. I can also go and I can talk to a group of 11 year olds. Uh, about this um, because ultimately I think we're only going to fix this if we start dealing with our children. Um, I, I worry about this group of 18 to 30 year olds yes. who, who didn't have any real direction yet had unfettered access to the greatest porn computer in the world. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know what to do with them. What we need to do with the younger kids is raise them the same way we raise our kids talking about drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or how to cross the street the right way. You know, I, I'm, I, you can say it's a horrible of indictment of where we are as a society, blah, blah, blah. In 2020, you have to talk to your children about pornography and you can make it age appropriate. A six year old doesn't need to hear anything other than, you know, pictures of naked people. Yeah. And, you know, don't let people take pictures of you. You don't take pictures of them. You let mommy and daddy know if something's wrong and leave it at that because kids want direction. 
you know, that's how I think that's how we deal with this. And you know what the, the truth is? There are a lot of kids who try drugs, even though their parents tell them not to. Right. And of, of that group, most never go back. There are a small group that do. However, it's not as many that are as are using porn. And it's not the numbers that are wow. increasing using porn because we don't have any defense against it. If you know, I think a 30 minute basic talk once a year in a health class for seventh graders would do a huge bit of difference. That's 30 minutes. It's not going to happen in our schools at all anytime soon because we still won't talk about toxic relationships, much less talk yeah. about pornography. But I think parents need to have an age-appropriate conversation a couple times with their kids. And I really believe the major conversation ends with the 13 or 14 year old boy who maybe he's starting to look at pornography, which is okay because that's natural. And almost every boy does this and not every boy ends up as an addict. But what we need to do is remind these boys that the, the end result is that you want a partner you can have healthy sexuality with. And what we're seeing these days in vast numbers is porn induced erectile dysfunction. Yes. That's a among older teens and among guys in their early 20s. Um, I actually talked to a guy about four or five weeks ago now who has been dealing with uh, PIED for about a year. And he has one of the most beautiful girls I have ever seen in real life as his girlfriend. He cannot perform sexually with her unless porn is playing on his laptop or on the TV in the background. They have actually got to the point where the only way that they can get off with each other is if she's in the other room in their apartment on a different laptop and he's in the bedroom on his laptop and they're talking to each other basically like it's online pornography. Wow. That tricks his brain into believing that, you know, it's pornography. So that that's a that's a that's a tragic sad story, but it's a powerful story because I don't think he wanted to be a porn addict. I think he wanted to have that girlfriend when he was 14. And I think he wanted to be able to function with her normally when he was 14. What we need to do is tell these 13 and 14 year old boys about the sexual dysfunction that can happen with pornography if they get into it too much when they're 15 or 16 or 17, that it doesn't matter who their girlfriend is when they're older, they could end up with these problems. And yes, that's perhaps scaring these boys into not using right. pornography. But we scare our kids into not smoking. We scare our kids to not use drugs. We scare our kids to not do a lot of stuff. And I think that's actually called good parenting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that we need to start talking about scaring our teenagers into looking at pornography in a healthy way or not looking at it at all because we didn't do this with the last generation. And now they're having cyber sex in different rooms of the same apartment. It's incredible. You know, when you when you mentioned that, I have actually had several conversations about this with some of my uh, psychiatry based friends, uh, colleagues, because they they turned this information on to me. They were saying, hey, Darren, you know, one of the biggest things that's going on right now, because, you know, I love to talk about different topics is sexual dysfunction among millennials because of pornography. And I said, I had never heard of this before. I mean, literally. I have no clue. So they start talking about it. And then all of a sudden I meet you and then you mention this. I'm like, this is a real serious issue, it seems like. It is. And that's, you know, I, I called my book, uh, my first book is called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. And it really is that, you know, it's one of these things that people 
just they won't openly talk about this. They won't talk, you know, if you talk about pornography, if you say the words pornography addict, it almost is like you're you're endorsing it. You know, right. simply it's 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 similar to the way where, you know, I've had people say to me, you know, because you had this this underage stuff, does that make you a ped- pedophile? That's like you can say the word pedophile out loud. No, it doesn't. Um, yeah. It, it'd be for, for a whole series of reasons, but just saying the word pedophile doesn't make you a pedophile. Maybe we can actually learn to deal with pedophiles if we say the word. Maybe we can learn to deal with pornography addiction if we can just say the word. You know, people are afraid of saying masturbate. People are right. afraid of... People I don't are afraid know of, why. Yeah, it's just weird. Because if I say masturbate, that means you know I have an idea what masturbation is. And if, <laughs> right. I have, if I have an idea what masturbation is, I may actually do it. And I may not actually do it. You may realize I do it as much as I <laughs> right, actually Exactly. You may realize that I'm doing it. Yeah. And the, fact, and the fact is, you're sitting there doing it twice as much as me. But, you know. <laughs> I'm afraid of what you're going to say. And that needs to just, you know, chill out as a society. We need to be able to say these hard words that have to do with sex or, or really have to do with any topic. Uh, because ultimately, education is the way that we're going to take care of these problems or any problems in the world. You know, uh, we're such a divided nation right now. And the big division is that we can't agree on what facts are. And that's... That's really, really sad. You know, it's, it's, I look at it like, you know, obviously climate change is happening. Now, if you don't want to do anything about climate change happening and let the world go to hell, hey, that's you. That's fine. Just admit it's happening. You know, <laughs> it doesn't make you any worse of a Republican or Democrat. It doesn't make you any worse of a, of a liberal or a conservative. It right. doesn't matter what team you wear the button for or whose name you check off on the piece of paper. We're all living on this earth our, together. We need to admit what is fact, what isn't fact. Science is okay. Science isn't a weird religion. Science is what we think we know to the best of our ability right now. And right. we should largely embrace that. And I don't have any problem with anybody who believes in a god or is a patriot or any of that stuff but we need to get to a place in this country and in this world where we can talk about our problems where it doesn't become a sporting contest and one of us has one of us has to win the argument yeah i actually just got in this conversation about you know when people pick sides and then they ferociously defend that side and are not open to um you know, different realities, potential realities on both sides, you know, for, and that if one thing was right or not, or it was found out to be factual or not, and, you know, it shouldn't like break your whole reality that, uh, I mean, you can still be a Republican, Democrat, if you find out something different than what you've already known about it, it's okay. Like, well, you know, it, does, it, it doesn't, it doesn't affect who you are as a person to change your mind about something. Sure. And it, do- it doesn't affect who you are as a person if it turns out that your mommy and daddy were wrong about something. <laughs> right. Because I think that's really where a lot of this problem comes sure. from. Is that people are defending uh, their legacy or their their family's legacy. And if you say, you know, gay marriage is okay, well, your your parents hated gay marriage. You may secretly 
think to yourself it's okay, but your parents hated gay marriage, and that was your mom and dad, and they weren't wrong about things. So down with gay marriage. And right. you know that's the thing is that you have to accept your mom and dad and your grandpa and your grandma. They were just as fallible as anybody else, and times change, and uh, you've got to change with them because here's the thing that has never been understood by people who really detest change. Change always wins. Change wins every time. You know, looking at whether it's women voting or, or slavery ending or civil rights or gay marriage uh, or friggin' casinos in every state. Right, right. Every issue that you can point to as a progressive issue eventually wins. You just have to wait for the old people to die. That's you really know, it's interesting. That's, that's the entire, entire. Formula. It's like marijuana. Like eventually yeah. you, you can see the trend, you know, medical marijuana, recreational and every more and more states keep adding it in. So you could say, well, this is never going to happen. But look what's happening. The change yeah. is happening. This progressive issue is changing. You right, have right. to realize that at some point. Yeah. And it's not it's not like, you know, we, we I think uh, maybe every generation does this, but it's not like we have got to the end point of history where nothing <laughs> is going to continue to change. There is not going to be, you know, more changes. Like you said, we're seeing them with the with the marijuana acceptance yeah. up there, with the acceptance of different people. I mean, I just learned recently what cisgendered meant. I, I still yeah. don't know why I would use it, but I, I, I or in what context I'll use it, but I learned what it meant. Um, and that's something that I never would have even thought of two sure. years ago at this point. The world changes and you have to be part of it. And if you're part of the change, you're usually on the right side of history. And that's you know part of why I'm out here just, you know frantically yelling about this stuff i do <laughs> i do advise addicts i do advise partners but i really feel like my calling is being out here you know appearing on shows like yours doing yeah. speeches in churches or libraries and just trying to let you know middle america know that hey this is a problem out there and we've got to talk about this because it's only going to get worse it's only going to get bigger and we can't keep burying our heads in the sand because we're going to have another opiate crisis on our hands uh we need to take care of it and we need to be progressive about this because the progressives yeah. win now do you ever have people when they or you approach them or they're talking to you that they're like, eh, I'm not sure I want this guy to talk about this <laughs> or they're oh, yeah. hesitant, yeah, you know, of like that was obviously and, for me, that was not an issue. You know? and no, no. And, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's getting better than it was even two years ago. Uh, but it's funny. I look at something like a, uh, parenting podcast, mm -hmm. um, for some reason, more moms will have me on their mom shows or their their parenting, you know, from a female perspective shows than dads will have me on their show. Now, could you say that's because maybe the dads are using porn more and don't want to look me straight in the face through a camera or whatever? Right. Maybe. I don't know what it is, but... And there are a lot of shows out there that, yeah, you know, we, we talk about health, we talk about this. Okay, well, do you want to talk about porn addiction? Uh, I don't know if that's right for my audience. Mm. And it's like, well, uh, you know, I, I, I have a feeling it's not right for you um, for, whatever, for whatever reason you don't want to talk right. about things. And, and you know what? It's their show, so, so be it. Sure. Thankful, thankfully, every other person on earth has a podcast right now. <laughs> that's um, true. So I, I don't need to have a podcast. I can just keep going on other people's and, and having different audiences, which is probably a better strategy yeah. anyway. Uh, 
but yeah, no, I uh, there are a lot of people who are you would think would not be squeamish about this. I mean, uh, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, and I would say that 95 percent of the medical professionals and mental health professionals I've interacted with are absolutely fantastic. Um, they have asked me for opinions, or you know, mm-hmm. and it, it's a great interchange. I'm learning so much more. And then there are that five percent who will flat out tell you, I don't believe in pornography addiction. Wow. As, dude, you have a, you know, what you, you have a master's in social work. <laughs> you're, you're seeing clients. Are you telling them you don't think that there's such a thing as porn addictions? Yes, I'm not telling them because there is no such thing as porn addiction. Look at the DSM. And it's like, okay, yes, but the DSM has been updated once in 13 years. The DSM also doesn't reflect that Instagram and Snapchat exist. True. But we, know, we know they exist. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's going to take a long time for the medical community to catch up. And for, for certain parts of the medical community to cling to the text is dangerous because, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was founded in the 1920s. It wasn't until the 1950s that the mental health uh, world uh, accepted uh, alcohol compulsion as an actual disease. And it wasn't until the 1990s that the DSM started to use the word alcoholism. That's that's 70 years wow. after, after AA started that the, the, the medical community was suddenly allowed to use the word uh, uh, alcoholism, even though everybody was by that point. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, if people are out there and they are telling you that there is no problem with porn and that porn or porn is a good thing. And there, there are those people out there, too. Um, odds are they have huh. an ag- they have an agenda. Um, and you can, you can see some of them on the, uh, the, 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 the web, these, uh, podcast database yeah. that we use. There are some people out there who, who have a very pro sex, uh, and, and not necessarily healthy pro sex platform because they're selling stuff. And, yeah. you know, if you're, if you have to go to a therapist who you don't want to deal with your porn addiction, the best thing to do is go to a therapist who doesn't believe in it. Um, I just think that uh, I, I think that the medical community needs to start moving a little bit faster on this. I don't want it to be year 2040 when they finally say, oh, I guess we can call this porn addiction a real thing yeah. because it's just going to be too late at that point. We need to uh, instead of waiting for, uh, you know, a bunch of guys in white lab coats uh, sitting around a uh, conference table at some hotel in right. Zurich in Zurich determining <laughs> this is real. Um, you know, it's real. And most, most of your clinicians, most of your therapists know it's real. Um, but there are still some out there who don't want to believe it. And that kills me that they're still out there because yeah. they're perpetuating a story to everybody else, to people who may not be touched by porn addiction or may not want to admit that they're touched by porn addiction, um, that they can continue to keep their heads in the sand because that's the worst thing that we can do when it comes to any problem. Like I said, education is the way to uh, to battle our problems in this world, not pretending they don't exist. So how do you, kind of as we move towards the end here, how do you continue to deal with that addiction that you have? Like on, I would imagine like anybody, you know, it's not like snap your fingers, it's over. You know, no, there, not, there are urges, there are sensations, feelings. How do you deal with that? 
Well, I tell you what's what's interesting to me is that in my first uh, two or three years, because uh, I've now been uh, in recovery for uh, basically six years um, since. Um, yeah, it was basically six years now. Um, the first three years, I would say pornography was the bigger issue. I didn't have my uh, website where I was writing about it every day. I wasn't giving at least one interview, sometimes three and four interviews a week about yeah. porn addiction. Uh, what you're doing with me here now is a big part of my recovery. You know, the fact that I sit here and talk about this and remind myself of this and yeah. I have to I prepare myself in advance to having an interview with you. And, you know, I you know, either you contact me or I contact you. And it's it's a whole thing that I spend my time working on porn addiction education and I, you know, uh, and uh, writing books or whatnot. So that's really where a lot of my energy goes at this point. It's not like porn isn't part of my life. It's just the other side of the coin. Right at, now, I'm trying to be the good guy and not the bad guy uh, when it comes to you know keeping people away from it and educating people instead of luring people into this catfishing scheme of mine. And my hope is that you know ultimately I can help create less victims than the victims I actually created, and maybe then you know somehow cosmically and karmically this was all for a greater good because i created fewer victims than i than i made um but in the last two or three years i've actually found the alcohol to be harder to stay away from hmm. and i still have dreams where i am at a bar and i'm drinking and uh i find it you know, when I'm in a restaurant, it's not hard to not look at a Playboy, but sure. it's, sometimes, it's sometimes hard to not have a, you know, really good looking microbrew when everybody else around you is drinking one. Um, that's, you know, a lot of the reason why I don't go to restaurants that have alcohol or don't keep alcohol in the house. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it has to be top of mind for me. Uh, the modality of cognitive behavioral therapy was huge. I'm already a, a giantly uh, logical person. I'm a giant analytical person. For me to learn how to analyze every behavior as I was going through it, look at possible outcomes, understand what the best choice was, and then after the fact, go back and review. I had to do that all the time early on. That's how I got rid of a lot of my uh, urges towards looking at the internet, or I'd go to a movie, and if there was a, if there was a new actress in it, uh, or a good-looking actress, you know, in 10 years ago, I'd run home and try to find uh, find a video clip of her right. on the internet from some other movie. Well, it doesn't even enter my mind to do that anymore because cognitive behavioral therapy talked me out of it so many times that it's like muscle memory. You know, it's 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 why you do it. It's why, yeah. you know, you do it again and again and again. I don't have to deal with that now. And I feel like I have the pornography very, very much in check. I do have the alcohol very in check. I haven't I haven't relapsed on other or either uh, in just about six years coming up in March. It'll be six years for both of them. Um, not one relapse the entire time. So what it is I'm doing, I guess I'm doing right. And uh, that's keeping both front of mind um, and uh, constantly reading about it, constantly talking about it. Uh, at this point, I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, I, I, I would feel so bad and I would know 
really how many people I was betraying yeah. based on the fact of how many emails I get and people saying I've helped them or just different, you know, message boards or Reddit or whatnot where I've commented and helped people that I just I, I, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Yeah. Oh, makes complete sense. Well, I want to commend you for that. Uh, for everything that you do coming on. It's a real honor to have you on here. I love to approach any topic that may seem anything like this or you know, an area that people might find controversial, not for the sensationalism of it and like, oh, look at, what, look at who we have on, but more of people need to have discussions. People right. need to hear honest discussions and say, hey, listen, I'm me. Take me for me. I'm in this situation. Learn from it. And let's have an honest discussion about it. And um, you've definitely done that, Josh. I'm, I'm very grateful that you came on today. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. The one thing I, I will say is uh, uh, you're, you're right that we need to have these conversations. But I will also tell you from, from a historical point of view, people who put the words porn or sex in the title of my podcast get five times the clicks than if, you, <laughs> than if you just have my name because yeah, nobody, sure. knows, nobody knows who my name is. So sure. uh, I like to say it's not sensationalism. It's just, here's a sensational topic. Sure. Come listen, yeah. Come listen to it because the content is sensational. Yeah. Uh, it pulls people in. Obviously they want to go, Oh wow. Overcoming yeah. porn addiction. Like I have to listen to this and hope maybe they listen to it for a different reason starting. And well, then it changes their mind while they're listening to it about wait, wait a minute, this is a little different than I thought it was going to be. You know? Well, the, the, the person who goes running towards something that says porn may exactly be the person who needs this message. That's exactly right. Well, listen, man, uh, again, I'm grateful for the time and for your honesty and and the life you're living, man. I, I'm proud of you. Seriously. Thank you. All uh, this that, stuff. It means that, a lot that you're doing this. And it, it means a lot to me that, you know, like I said, you, you had me on this show. We, we arranged when to do it. Um, yeah. We've had this great conversation. It does take both sides of things to make this uh, transaction work. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for you for doing this and uh you know there are people out there who hopefully will be touched by this they'll realize that there is no stereotypical porn addict to they need to get help and uh you know just keep fighting that good fight you got it man well listen josh have a great rest of your day and we'll thank be in you. touch thank you very much have a good all one. all right thanks man later later